Thank you for ministering to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs this morning. I, the more I understand Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5, it's something that took me a long time to grasp myself personally in relationship to what my responsibility was to minister to you when I sing. Um, that's what the text says, and, and you folks are learning that well, and certainly encouraging each other well uh, when we sing together and we worship in song together. Uh, trust we'll do that now as we open God's word together. And um, as Pastor Mark prayed, have prepared hearts to receive it and apply it. All right? So Job chapter 1. It's um, wonderful on this Christmas morning uh, to <laughs> be able to welcome back uh, to church, Eric Hickson hasn't been here for a while and been in a lot of pain. It's great to see Eric. It's great to see Carrie here uh, this morning, and great to see Mrs. Matana uh, as well. Um, young people visiting their families from out of town. It's great to see you as well. Uh, let's uh, look forward to greeting these folks uh, after the service and encouraging them, and certainly. I know it's your hearts to find people that you don't know as well and greet them in the Lord's name. And, and, uh, don't ever underestimate uh, the difficulty that the person sitting next to you or behind you is enduring right now. Right? This is an opportunity we have to, to encourage the flock, to, to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And, uh, I think God even ordains where you've chosen to sit this morning in relationship to who around you might need your encouragement. So let's keep our minds always active in that relationship because Romans chapter 12 that talks about those verses is in a worship context. These are just some of the things that are divine that we do together uh, as a church family. So let's pray. And uh, we'll dive into God's word again here this morning. Father in heaven, we love you. We ask for your help this morning, the help of your spirit. Your spirit is the one who takes the truth of the word that you've given to us and illuminates it to our hearts, makes its truth significant to our hearts. We seek, Lord, to rightly divide the word of truth and apply it as it was given that we might know what it means for you to work through us, uh, your glory, uh, by Christ Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Spurgeon said, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, years ago, said, in heaven we shall see that we had not one trial too many. We're studying the life of a man who endured probably the greatest calamity a human in history outside our Savior had been asked to endure. Job was a man who was prepared to understand what he was going through because he understood his God. When I read that quote by Spurgeon, I thought, wow, Job's, 
Job's a man in his life now is already understanding that when he would get to heaven, he would understand that he did not have one too many trials on earth. He was prepared. We're talking about the life of Job because we need to understand, I need to understand what it means to be prepared for God-appointed calamity to come to our lives. Why invest so much time on these first five verses of Job? That's why. I believe the author of Job is seeking to convey to the reader through wisdom that Job really was the last person on earth that anyone thought should endure the calamity he did. Why Job, of all people? So we understand his person and his character in verse 1, right? We understand his perspective and this morning his piety and his patience. Understanding the quality guy that Job was. Why in the world would God appoint him to suffer such calamity? And I think we need to understand this because the onslaught from Job's friends coming later, Job did not think that. His friends did not think that of him. Job's friends that loved him and he loved them, they troubled his soul. Because they didn't have that thought of all the people on earth. Why you, Job? We can't figure this out. They just dove right into that retributive theology and you must be getting hammered by God because you sinned, Job. And the text of Scripture tells us that in all these things, Job did not sin. So we too can learn from the life of Job what God's grace did to develop his life, what it means to be prepared for any degree of calamity that God might allow and or even indeed appoint to our circumstances. Let's reread verses 4 and 5 this morning. It says, His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one in his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. And when the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job was sent. Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And thus Job did continually. about Job's piety is demonstrated through how much his family loved each other. Piety is seen through the love of Job's family unit. Job had to have developed his relationships with his family according to the grace of God. Job had to have developed his family according to not rules, but living the character of God in a sincere way before his children. It was his life on open display. It was his life being 
developed by the grace of God on open display before the lives of his family through which his family learned who God was. Isn't that a more excellent way to, to live among those who love us than to just lay down a set of rules for them to follow? Truly any parent single or married here, or any grandparent or anyone really in the oversight of children here. There are virtues of grace in Job's life that we can see that are true here. And there are some conclusions that we can honestly make from what we see is true about Job's life. And the last of verse 5 said, Thus Job did continually. These things that were happening here were a habit. They were a habit. Last week we introduced to you three specific things that, in the form of a question that we would look at in relationship to the, the, the reverent way in which Job lived his life before his family. And that first question was, what did Job value? What did Job value? Remember we said that wisdom literature was long before a way, before it became a genre of literature, it was given to teach us how to live life. Okay. That's what wisdom literature does. Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, wisdom literature teaches us how to live day to day, sunrise to sunset. So we're learning the day-to-day -day realities of Job's life lived before his family. And what did he value? Job valued his children's spiritual welfare. He valued his children's spiritual welfare. As one writer observes, this was not an obsessive anxiety for Job. It was, if it was... He would not have been called one who fears God. One who fears God knows the peace of God and the ability of the grace of God to walk in the will of God and not to run. Job lived his life at a steady, spirit-filled, spiritual pace. And he modeled that for his children. It was part of his life that would translate to those who loved him. What were some of the ways that Job could have, or what are some of the ways that we can live our lives to value that which Job valued, which was the spiritual welfare of his own children? I'm going to ask you a series of questions now. And in any way that you oversee children, I think all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine and for, inst for instruction, for reproof, and for correction. So everyone that's here, in some way or another, is modeling the character of God before someone younger than you. 
what can you learn from the life of Job in relationship to what it means to value the spiritual welfare of someone younger than you? Specifically, the application is the home, but for all of us, I don't have any children at home yet anymore. So who am I going to model Job's character to? Um, my dog doesn't sin. I've never seen that dog sin one time. It can't. Right? And yet it's not perfect. Who am I going to model this behavior before? There's a lot of people younger in my life than 54 years old. I certainly value this for my own children. I seek to hopefully model this for my children as they're leaving or have left my home. But I have no authority in their lives anymore. But again, Job wasn't respected because of the authority sword he wielded. His character was respected. So I'm going to ask you this. If you do have children in your home or a younger person in your life, that you've had the opportunity to model God's character before? Do you pray for them? And do you let them know that you do? Do they know that you have a relationship with God and his word? Do you talk with these young people in your care about how you try to walk with God? Do you discuss with them how difficult it is for you to do so sometimes? but teach them how God's grace compels you to keep doing it. Do we know enough about God to be able to apply him to everyday situations? Can we walk our kids through how God would have us handle temptation, failure, success, mean people, kind people, hard stops, in our life that God allows and even continued favor he grants us have you shared with children in your life or under your care how and why you've come to certain convictions in your life have you lovingly let them know from the scripture why you stand where you stand on certain things are you comfortable enough with young people in your life to discuss with them the modern sins of the day and call them that? Can we talk about sin with our kids and still have compassion for the sinner? Are we generally interested in how children under our care view life through the lens of God? When is the last time a child under your care was invited to give you their testimony of how they came to know Christ? When was the last time you gave them yours? Ephesians chapter 6 says, Fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. All of these questions are about rearing 
young people under our care in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord? All of these questions have everything to do with learning how to live Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. When we, when we wake up with our children, when we walk by the way with our children, when we lie down all day long, sunrise to sunset, we're able to just live God's character naturally, not oppressively with them. Living the character of God, speaking the character of God, watching the character of God through our lives. We are the conduit of the glory of God in Christ Jesus of the character of God. It ought to be as natural for us to be able to communicate spiritual character and life like that as it is for us to breathe. No one in the last minute told their lungs to inflate. No one in the last minute told your heart to beat. No one thought about needing to blink, to moisten a dry eye. These are what we call involuntary actions that God's built into our infrastructure of our body, right? When I look at the life of Job and compare it, this scripture to other scriptures in relationship to influencing young people in our lives, living this kind of character developed by the grace of God becomes a very much an involuntary spontaneous, if you will, consistent reality in our relationships. What did Job discern in the text? As we've tried to demonstrate through these previous questions, Job was not merely concerned with the outward conformity of godliness of his children, he was truly concerned for their hearts. Job was not concerned about his children ruining the family reputation. He was deeply concerned about their own personal, intimate walk with God. He desired his children to be sensitive to how their sin affected their relationship with God. Job knew that the sin of his children didn't separate them from him, but from their creator. Job wanted his children to know the forgiveness of God. If Job was living today, he would have wanted his children to know that the wrath of God that abides upon the children of disobedience had been appeased and satisfied in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Job wanted his kids' hearts to be right with God and with man. Job said, perhaps in the text, my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Job wasn't an Eli of the Old Testament that never discussed sin and its influence in his children's lives, therefore costing them their lives physically and spiritually. Job was readily praying, worshiping, and serving with his kids because he desired his children to know that God thought what God thought about sin, and he wanted to develop in his children a healthy introspection an examination of their own sin and their responsibility towards God for it. We can exclusively have rules that show our children how broken they are 
We can have a tender relationship with them, testifying how broken we are as their leaders and mentors, and sharing with them how much we stand in desperate need of the forgiveness of God through Christ in our own life at salvation and to maintain our fellowship. So, can we prioritize the purity of the hearts of our children, or are you willing to do that? I would say that one of the most effectual ways to keep before our kids their own fallenness and their own need for forgiveness from a very loving and gracious God is to answer each one of the nine questions from our first point this morning in relationship to Job's piety. What did he value? Go back and maybe listen to the recording or watch the recording of this sermon. Rehearse those nine questions. Incorporate those nine questions into the relationship life that you have with those young people under your care. And through answering those questions yourself and having them do the same, you will inevitably bring those young people to the point where they will see where they stand before God. It naturally happens as godly, loving relationships develop. What did Job discern? What did he discern? And what did he require of himself? Job took the lead. Now we understand from this culture that there were family priests. We don't know if this was pre-Mosaic, during the time of Israel's existence. We've already talked about that in the introduction. But regardless, we don't believe that Job was existing within the Mosaic ceremonial context of doing no Mosaic law. But he knew enough about God, and in this time and in this culture, there were family priests. They, they took the spiritual lead, if you will, for the care of their families. If you're not in, under the umbrella of the influence of the Mosaic law, then and certainly the church doesn't exist yet, then you're a dad. Someone's got to take the lead. And and this is what Job's responsibility was. This is what he required of himself. He led by example, an example of love. He loved in such a way he could ask his children to follow his example and wouldn't need to demand that they follow it. He had earned their respect without having to demand it. Job's children weren't legalistically shaped religious robots. They weren't cold, spiritual, rubber stamps of his legalism. They wouldn't have suffered from modern-day scrupulosity that we discussed last week. They were example kids because they had a godly father. Job required of himself 
that he modeled God's loving grace in his children's lives and he, and he humbly did it. The latter part of the book of Job details for us the character that he lived before his children. You can cross-reference here next to verses 4 and 5. Job 29, verses 7 through 11. The text there in Job's defense of himself says that he was highly respected in his own community. His children had, had the opportunity to, to see, to be eyewitnesses, to be front row ticket holders of Job's life as he walked around town. Remember the text says earlier he was the greatest in the man in the east, but what about his own town? The text of scripture says those that he interfaced with on a daily basis that did not walk with God, he was respected by. Job didn't have a lot of enemies. Matter of fact, the text never tells us he had any. Job chapter 29 and verse 7 and verses 12 to 17 tells us that he was a highly respected judge. Now, we don't know from history if this meant that he was a judge in the legal form or he was just so highly respected people that had altercations between one another or people that had grievances came to him to get wisdom because they trusted him. But Job's children would have been aware that these people were coming to him. And Job's children saw him interface lovingly with these people in town and how he loved them with people in town was exactly the same. They were loved at home. And how often many children could testify by saying, wow, I wish dad cared for us at home like he does outside the home for people. Seems to be a different guy. But for Job's children, there was consistency. Job chapter 29, verses 21 to 25, the text says that he was a wise counselor. So not just generally respected, not just respected as one that could call a shot in relationship to a civic matter or a legal matter. He was a wise counselor. This would have been a man who modeled with his children watching on the ability to help someone else with their marriage, to help someone else with rearing of their own children, to help someone else with their, uh, their own walk with God. He was a wise counselor. The, the text of Scripture tells us this. We highlighted last week, Job 31, verses 13 to 15, and verses 38 and 39. Job's children knew that he was a man of wealth, all of that had been gifted by God, and Job gave them verbal testimony of that fact. Job would have never been one to talk about his entrepreneurial spirit in front of his children. He would have not been one to give his children lectures primarily on how to become rich like he did. Job would have just testified that everything he had came from God. And his children had the opportunity to watch him love and express patience and discernment with those that were under his employ, his employees. Job chapter 31 is very clear. He was a gracious and a wise employer. 
Job's children would have been able to see him invite people onto his property and into his home. And in chapter 31, verses 16 to 21, they would have been able to be eyewitnesses of his hospitality. Accepting strangers into his home so that they might be eyewitnesses of God's grace and how it had developed his character as well. There's just a responsibility here that Job took the lead, took it upon himself to do these things and was compelled of God to model this character. Job chapter 31, verse 1 and verses 9 through 12. Would you turn there with me? Chapter 31 and verse 1. Job took it upon himself to live responsibly in the area of moral purity before his children. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze upon a virgin? Go down with me to verse 9. If my heart has been enticed by a woman, or I have lurked at my neighbor's doorway, may my wife grind for another and let others kneel down over her. For that would be a lustful crime. Moreover, it would be an iniquity punishable by judges. For it would be fire that consumes Abaddon and would uproot all my increase. Job was a man of moral conviction. Job would have been a man that certainly spoke to his children his own personal temptations to immorality. He would have been someone that would convey to his children by the way he lived and by what he said, how he protected himself from being unfaithful to their mom. And we have taught them why marriage is sacred. And they would have taught them whose institution that marriage really is. Amen. Whether respected in the community, a valued judge, a wise counselor, a gracious and beneficent employer, a charitable, hospitable person or someone that lived God's morality in relationship to sexual purity before his children, Job was all of these things because he feared God. The beginning, right? Of knowledge is the fear of God. And the fear of God compels us to live wisely. So Job chose to live consistently as the lead in these areas. And I would say for all of us, it's okay for us to choose the same. 
Job lived these values before his children. So yes, we are confident that there would have been quite a few conversations about what Job modeled. Job would have made conversations about spiritual matters common. He could speak freely with his kids of his failures and because of his pursuit of the holy character of God, he could relate to his children how God forgave him and set his feet in the right direction again and God would do the same for them. Job would have been a dad that didn't set unrealistic spiritual expectations of his children. He certainly wouldn't have been a do as I say and not as I do father. He would have been careful not to provoke his children to wrath. Job's family was a unit and he valued and he took the lead in valuing the body, if you will, of his family as a God-given unit. Job knew that the family functions together and is designed by God to function together as a, not just a physical unit, but a spiritual unit for eternal purposes. God has always chosen to use groups, if you will, units of people to do his will. Members of homes, the people of the nation of Israel, and for us, our homes and the body of our church. Among God's spiritual units, individuals are not created or gifted to exist alone or out in front or apart from that unit. God's units for eternal purposes are teams. 1 Corinthians 12 calls the body of Christ, the family of Christ, a body. In the church... Christ is the bridegroom and the body, the bride, are always the primary focus of eternal attention and purpose. With our bodies, the the hand never acts independently of the body. Our right eye never has a mind of its own. Our heads swivel and turn in conjunction with the intentions of the whole of our body. If any people group given to us by God to enjoy, souls exist as a unit, a team, a family of faith. Not only are they a unit, they are together pursuing unit or body reverence. Consider the wording of Job's persistence here in the pursuit of this unit reverence of his own family. It's done together with the attention all being given to the Almighty, the reverent one himself, God. Directly tied to the value of the unit of the family is that purpose. Job leads them and models for them, living what is holy, and then enjoyed the eternal pursuit together. This is what God does with his bodies, his units. They work in unison towards eternal purpose. Anyone seeking to act as an individual apart from the body distracts from the body and also from the purpose of its focus. For us, the family is a gift of God to show us the indivisibility of God and his beauty. Whether we have children or not, spouses pour the love of God into each other's lives unto eternal purpose and 
We together as homes do the same when we gather as a body here to glorify in God and worship and to be equipped to go and, and do eternal work together in our community through the spread of the gospel. The glory of this age is the body of Christ and its head Christ. And when the body as a unit functions unto the mission of Christ, that body's able to live Christ's why, the why of his life now. And your family is a part of this body. God values the nature and the purpose of those units. It was Job's lifestyle. Job had not made an idol out of his family unit. He didn't idolize his kids. Why do you say this? Well, do you know what the number one per capita cause of divorce is in our country at this point? It's the death of a child. When Job loses 10 children, not one, what do we see him saying to his wife? Shall not we receive good and evil from the hand of the Lord? If Job's children were his idols, he would have had the response possibly of his wife probably much worse. He probably would have cursed God and wanted to die. We'll look at this the next time we're together. But Job's kids weren't his everything. God was. And he knew his children weren't his. They were God's. So Job loved the unit, the team, the family that God had given him. He nurtured that unit according to God's character because it was God's unit. He modeled the character of God for God's unit and he led in worship of God because that was God's family. I would ask you just to write this down and this isn't an aside. I think this was really an article that was tremendously uh, instrumental in my life in the last month or so here. It's actually an article written to pastors. And it's easily findable if you just like get on Twitter or um, probably Instagram or certainly you can Google it. It's an article, it's a Nine Marks article. It's just called this, The, the Pastor and an Unmessianic Sense of Non-Destiny. <coughs> Don't figure it out now. It'll cramp the gears of your brain. Just write it down and read it the pastor in an unmessianic sense of non-destiny. It's an article that helps pastors analyze how they were taught and how they were taught to be in ministry. And because of an unfortunate way that they were taught to exist in ministry and they weren't able to achieve the goals of how they were taught, their life is falling apart and they're wanting to quit 
because they were improperly taught that they were to act as an individual within the body unit of the church and to seek their goals and achieve their goals. And when they get to a certain age and they find out that what they were taught is impossible to do, they get depressed because they lose their value. The purpose of the article is to, to teach us that our value is found in the head of the body, Christ, and in the eternal function of that body, the family which is attached to the church, and to find great joy there and as we lead those under us or around us. We seek to learn to lead, not so that we might be seen and that we might achieve, but that God might be seen and that Jesus Christ would be exalted. Now, Job's patience. Go with me to the book of James as we close this morning. Let's look a little bit about Job's patience. We've seen the character of his person, his perspective, his piety, and now his patience. Ah, yes, the patience of Job. Where does this statement come from? I don't know that the book of Job ever uses that word patience to describe Job. We just know that he was. But there's, an old, there's a New Testament text that actually teaches us that Job was very much in tune with understanding what patience is. Uh, read with me here as we close uh, this morning. James chapter 5, and let's look at verse 7. James chapter 5 and verse 7. And I want you to underline every time, if you believe in writing in your Bibles, it's easy to underline on a screen because you can erase it. Therefore, be patient. Underline the word patient here. Therefore, be patient, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it, until it gets the early and latter rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. I conclude this morning by telling you that Job sought to model the character of God among those that were under him and around him by living with and before them the very patience of God. Of the multiple times the word patience is used here, five verses, six times, Four of those six times, the word for patience is a word that's used to describe the patience of God in 2 
Peter 3.9. God is not willing that any man should suffer. God is not willing that any man should perish. But he's patient towards all men. God's not slow concerning his own promise. But he has patience with men. There's two synonyms for the word patience here. They're tightly connected with slightly different applications. The first four times you see the word patience, James, the author, is telling his church that they need to be patient with each other. This is enduring with people that sometimes you don't get or that have rubbed you the wrong way or that have offended you. The person who waits with patience for the husbandman to come, the Lord Jesus Christ to come, the person who waits with patience as he plants and he tends to his garden and he endures until the time of harvest. Those two analogies are given to us here to, to teach us that, that God's patience can be our patience with men as we endure over long periods of time. And as we love our way unto this kind of patience with each other, we're modeling the character of God. We're for our children. So how quickly do our children know? How quickly those younger than us under our influence know that we get ticked off with people? How quickly do they know us to not just get ticked off but burn bridges? with God's people. The character of God would have us be makrothumi, as the Greek word here, patient with people. And Job's patience was also a patience that endured under trial. Two of the six times here are, are referenced in verse 11. That's the Greek word hupameto. It means to endure under the heaviest of afflictions. The people of God, specifically in Job's family, because Job's referenced here, would have been people that were used to Job persevering under various trials long before the calamity that came to his life that we see in chapter 1 of Job. For it's inevitable that trials are going to come. And the text says here, Along with some of the prophets, we're going to slip Job in there. Consider how consistent he was with his walk with God by enduring well before others. Elizabeth Elliot once wrote from the book of 2 Corinthians, she said, the promise is my grace is sufficient for thee not my grace will abolish your thorns. God's grace is sufficient for us as it was for Job. What is enduring in patience 
not. It's not suffering in silence. It's not enduring with a stiff upper lip. It's certainly not a sign of sin. We're going to discuss together from the book of Job how we very clearly never suffered in silence. Job spoke his mind to God. Some of us are going to be amazed, and maybe you already have when you read of how Job expressed his mind to God and his friends, of how through the whole ordeal, God could say he still never sinned. Suffering is real. Suffering is hard. When suffering touches our fallen humanity, even to the degree that Job endured it, even to the degree that some of you are enduring it touches the whole of our person, including our emotions, doesn't it? And we do have a reaction. We'll, dis we'll discuss that having that reaction is okay as you fear God and you remain patient with men and endure under that trial so long as God would have you endure it. And we remember from a context of suffering these words from Peter in 1 Peter 4.19. As you're enduring with men and under the trial, entrust yourself to a faithful creator who's overseeing it all while you continue to do good things. Entrust yourself to a faithful creator while we continue to do good things. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you. Thank you so much for helping us understand the piety, the perspective, the patience, and the character of Job's person. Help us, Lord, to meditate upon what you've done in our lives in relationship to what you did in Job's, and help us to continually meditate upon what you did in his life, and potential preparation for enduring God-appointed suffering for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, we started the book of Job the second week of February. We did a handful of weeks on introduction. We've done a handful of weeks on just the five verses. The rest of the book is going to go very quickly. You don't teach wisdom literature like you teach New Testament epistolary literature. Wisdom literature is to be taught with broad and wise perspective in order that we might know how to live day to day. Okay. So the next time we get together in the book of Job, we're going to cover quite a chunk of the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2. And then from there, we won't be in this book for the rest of the year. Right? So you say, wow, if it's going to go this slow every week for the rest of the year, how in the world are we going to make it through? It won't be that slow. But by God's grace, the, the richness of the truth of this wisdom will change us. Amen. All right? Let's sing together. Let's close with number 47 in the black hymnal, Here is Love.